0: The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of KUCI, its management, the California Board of Regents, or Farron Kidd, Jazika Dunn, Kelsey Brewer, Zoe Raven, Wianaki, Natalie Martinez, Héctor Zalivar, or Lashi Rodriguez. Good morning, I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh welcoming you to the June 23rd, 2020 edition of Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. It's my 10th year anniversary of Ask a Leader, and what a time I've had, and I hope you've had. I've had lots and lots of guests over these 518, I'm counting, shows, lots of boning up on some things that were straight out exotic, some that were comfortable as an old shoe, I ventured into places I never would have were it not for bringing you what's developing out there. I appreciate the special friendships that I've developed with my guests. Some guests are no longer with us and many of them are plain going to return to this lovely program that you have built with me. Thank you for that. My highest aspiration? Well, that would be when my son and or my daughter sit in Studio A with me or better yet, let me turn the mic on where they'd be sitting. For today's program, I take stock with and have the pleasure of bringing to you KUCI station manager, Kevin Stockdale, activist, producer, performer, Archer Altstetter, UCI scientist, Kathleen Treceder, and UCI theater director, Jane Page. We'll be right back with my first guest, Kevin Stockdale. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Kevin Stockdale, former bio major, UC Irvine grad, who's been station manager at KUCI. It's 30, how many years ago, Kevin?
1: It began in December of 1988.
0: So this is actually the first time that Kevin's been on my show. He's been on our Hall of Fame, you might have heard and mainly he's had a heavy metal show back in the day, and I think you take that up from time to time. From his KUCI office, previously frequented by exotic critters and now still walled in by a maximal Simpsons paraphernalia collection, Kevin listens to whether any one of us stray from the wholesome community radio charter. I'm glad to have him with us today. Times have been tough with the adjustments he's had to make during the pandemic. He comes to us today from Studio B. Welcome to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor, Kevin Stockdale.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Well, as we're taking stock of this 10-year anniversary of mine today, a third of your managerial post that would be then you've been putting up with me, starting with when I, I actually muted folks. I muted the transmission of the KUCI Broadcasting, my second show in July of 2010, but you haven't ever thrown me out yet, but all that you put up with me, Kevin.
1: Well, you know, as long as you don't keep muting, uh, (laughs) we'll do okay, and I (laughs) want to say that that muting is probably your gang initiation into the KUCI gang. Um, When I started, uh, my first show was 1984, and we had to turn the station on at 6 a.m., and We had just learned how to do it, and by that time we had to do it, I couldn't figure it out, so we had to wake up the student general manager and have him remind us. So we've all been there. It's no big deal.
0: Oh, I had no idea. I had to wait 10 years to hear that initiation. (laughs) Oh, because I I thought I was going to be fired. So, and I don't know, there's there's a lot of things that you've put up with over the years, and I I don't know that I'm going to change at my ripe age, but I just want to thank you for letting me, you know, Go on the edge and walk back from that edge and resume, which is a the heck of a dance with you at the Radio KUCI, Kevin.
1: Uh, absolutely. And I would uh, have to say congratulations on your unofficial uh, title of the hardest working volunteer who puts in the most time and has the most eagerness for everything you attack. So it, uh, it shows in your product.
0: Oh, wow. Well, well, thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Well, Kevin, you like everyone on campus and during the pandemic has to adapt on the dime to the pandemic circumstances. We had a two week hiatus in that we were not producing new shows. And I speak for our staff, our gratitude, Kevin, that you made sure that the show must go on. The whole staff, as we yearn to get together someday, I just wanna thank you so much for all the extra work And the heft that you put into, um, the the blood, sweat, and the tears, I'm imagining, in making sure that we keep doing this at Radio KUCI.
1: Absolutely. And and keeping the station going is my number one priority and something I deal with morning, noon, and night, seven days a week. Yesterday was three months that I've been remotely managing the audio content that goes out pre-recorded or rerun. And, you know, I can't think of any other way to have it. I remember before we had the university closed, but it was imminent. My boss asked if we could just shut down operations for three weeks. And I thought, you know, we have such a, a struggle with our small signal and our diverse and changing lineup to have an audience and build an audience just to disappear for three weeks would have been near fatal, I would imagine, and i hadn't even thought about the potential of 3 weeks turning into 3 months turning into what now will be probably closer to 6 months so i'm just i'm and i'm grateful f- to you and the other folks who are going through the effort of of making new shows and you know submitting them so we can have new content i'm doing my best to fill all the other gaps in this summer we have about 69 to 79 hours of uh, unfilled time so it's a lot of reruns I'm, I'm patching together and I know how hard people work. I actually just took three of my one hour jazz shows from 2001.
0: Oh, that's right. It, I did hear them. I forgot yeah. to mention that in your introduction. That's right. Yeah.
1: And I did actually sit here uh, today and I went through and cut out all the references to my show partner that was coming up next and the day and the time. And I cut out some of the uh, sponsored uh, public service announcements, the donor announcements, and I patched in, you know, this was first heard in 2001 And to patch three already recorded hours of content, but to do those edits took me probably 40 minutes. And now that's one show I have that I can air next week in my new jazz time slot Thursdays at 1 p.m. But, uh, you know, just doing that was a lot of work. So I can only imagine music and public affairs host and how much time it takes to put in and edit together a new show. So I'm I'm just pleased that more than half the people are able to do that and willing to do that.
0: Well, it was very precious how... All kinds of media were acknowledging the, the value of radio and the necessity that broadcasts continue. So it was very hard for radio files like myself and, and KUCI contributors to sit out those two weeks. And we were so glad to get back on. I want to close, Kevin, with what kind of encouraging words you can have for the longevity of the KUCI station through the oh. pandemic and on the other end. What can you tell us that we can hopefully expect? uh,
1: I think we'll have, I'd like to think we'll have more creativity and we'll have people that are just yearning to be in the studio and touch the equipment again and disinfect it after they've touched it. And uh, you know, that, that will probably last a while, but I think people will be rejuvenated just by, you know, walking in the building and smelling the old vinyl albums and you know, the, the smell of a, a, you know, a, a facility that has, been untouched and uh, you know for however many months so i think you know once we kind of get used to the new routine of potentially wearing masks for who knows how long and and you know limiting how many people are in the studio i think once we get through that you know we're going to continue to provide the most unique and diverse music and and talk and news that you can hear left of the dial or beyond
0: i needed that encouraging word and i know that my esteemed colleagues at Radio KUCI are are encouraged about that too. Well, Kevin, thank you for your time today and letting me keep doing my show. And thanks so much, I really appreciate
1: it. Uh, Congratulations on 10 wonderful years and here's to the next 10 years.
0: Oh, thank you, Kevin. Kevin Stockdale is Radio KUCI's veteran DJ and over the decades station manager. We'll be right back with Archer Altstetter, the producer of all producers, entrepreneur of all entrepreneurs, activist of all activists. Welcome back to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. My next guest is Archer Altstetter, the producer of all producers, entrepreneur of all entrepreneurs, activist of all activists, who gets more done in 24 hours than any human being I know. He's a Disney veteran, owned a dance studio, developed some leading-edge environmental real estate in the most interesting places around the world, and there are many other things that may actually come up, too, in this brief time I get to have with Archer Altstetter. He comes to us today from, where are you, Archer?
2: In Santa Ana.
0: Thanks for coming back to the show, Archer.
2: Thank you for having me again. It is always a pleasure to be with you and share time with you and be inspired by just your questions, lead me to new adventures. So thank oh, you.
0: Well, that's high praise from somebody who gets it in with so much intention and so much heavy duty sort of aesthetic. I mean it's amazing. So the reason, listeners, I was so intent on including Archer to this short list of people to take stock on the 10th anniversary of Ask a Leaders you, Archer, were the first guest to ask to be on my show. That was a milestone for me. And and when I first started the show, I thought, I wonder if anybody's ever going to want to ask for time on it. And you were the one.
2: Oh, was I? I well, well, I'm, I'm well. Uh... After talking to you and you told me about a show, I'm like, I want, I want to, I have things to say.
0: (laughs) So and I'm trying to think of that after that first one, you, I think you were talking about some things that were happening in Santa Ana. And also one of the topics that I had you back on was when the Boy Scouts of America rewrote their charter to allow for. Gay leadership in the organization. It was was it just was it the members or the leaders or both? Because I think they uh, took
2: two steps. It was two steps. I do remember that that you know, it, allowing an openly gay scout as a, a young scout, and then there was another one with hap, allowing openly LGBTQ leaders, and I think that was very important. I know that scouting was really important in expanding my view of the world both societal and and in nature. I, I, know, I he know he was not out, but I know I had, one of my scout directors was not out, but I know he was gay. And he was really important in my development. He really taught me so many things and there was nothing ever sexual about that. I was just really happy when the Boy Scouts of America you know openly said yes we do have gay leaders and it it is okay
0: well that story gets lost in all that sort of the tribal kind of backlash of opening up organizations for all kinds of leaders to be a part and all kinds of members to be a part so i i guess it's just a it's such a poignant point that you're making about how people are dismissed and the kind of just heartening the sad opportunities that are lost when people are dismissed
2: and when and if you don't have if i had not seen a leader i mean if i had not uh, in my youth knowing that i was you know uh in my adolescence trying to figure out who i was in the small farm town that i was growing up in In ohio i had in ohio if i had not and i didn't have there was no other the only images that I had of gay people in the media in the, in the 80s were bad. It was HIV, gay people were bad, gay people were pedophiles, gay people, all the bad things. Those were the only images I had of gay people. And it was because of Boy Scouts and having a gay leader. Not, he wasn't open, but I knew if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't, I, he showed me how to be a leader.
0: All right on like on, on and, a kind you, of a
2: you know, level. If your representation is a, if you don't see somebody that is a leader or in power or a supervisor or a president that is like you, that you, you don't think you can be that. If, you know, when I, I remember crying tears of joy when I saw Barack and Michelle Obama's little girls in the White House and how I thought of all the little girls of color around the world thinking, I can do that. I can be there. And, 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 and until then, you know, there was no representation. I mean, like, you wouldn't think, well, I can, I can be president. Little black girls, because they saw Michelle and Barack Obama in the White House and their girls, that's a reality for them now. And when I saw a leader that was gay, it was a reality for me that I could be a leader. And you've
0: taken that to, it's been private sector. You were part of a big corporation, as I mentioned in the introduction, and you you built that dance studio, and there were some amazing things that happened. And then later on, you, you've you picked up, I, I'm not sure, simultaneously, if it, environmental design uh, in and well, sustainable you know, I, areas, along with the Prop 8 opposition work <laughs> that you did. They were,
2: the first there was, Prop 8. So in my dance studios, I was openly gay, And I taught, you know, so little kids saw me from early on, and I was married to my husband back then, or I wasn't married because we didn't have marriage equality at the time. But, you know, so my my partner, and I, I referred to him as my husband. And so little kids all over Irvine and South Orange County saw an adult male married to another adult male, and we were a happy functioning couple. And that's a reality. And it was, you know, for little kids. So it's just normal for those kids to see, right. oh, well, yeah, two men can be married. Of course they can. Yeah. I remember I have a little girl said, little kids, they always ask, are you married? And I would say, yes. And they said, what's your wife's name? And I said, oh, I don't have a wife. I have a husband. And, so, you know, most of them would, at first they would say, well, you can't do that. And I would say, but, well, I can, and I am. <laughs> and they would say, oh, okay. Well, I guess that's the way it is then. Okay. They would just say, yeah. okay.
1: They, accepted. And because,
2: accepted, they would just accept it because they saw it from an early age that that's just the, I mean, it is, I'm just as normal as anybody else and, and that's just the way it is. <sighs> and so, okay. And then, but so, and then Prop 8 came to take away my equality and my students saw me fight hard for that. And I, and I will say, I lost clients over it too. Because I had some clients that absolutely said, "Well, no, you can't get married." And I'm like, "Well, well, um, you can. You can call it anything you want, but you can't call it marriage." I'm like, "Well, if you get to call it marriage, why don't I get to call it marriage?" Because I'm doing all the same things that you do. We live in the same. You know, we share bank accounts. We share. You know, we share a family. We raise children, and And we're doing everything that. And we love, and we and we have (gasps) loved, and there's nothing, but why do you get a call at marriage and I don't? That's not equality. And I'm just as human as you are. and But I had to be out and you know, and it was ferociously out at that point and pretty in your face about it.
0: Yeah. yeah. Um,
2: and I remember my students coming to me after the, the, the day after that, we, we lost that. We lost, we had to, we could get married and my students saw that we, they were my students were devastated for me it was yeah. i was devastated <laughs> but but you know we have you know orange county equality coalition came out of that and and you know we you know, my name is on the amicus briefs that went to the supreme court
3: wow wow
2: and and my name is on the <laughs> i was the witness for the first marriage first same gender marriage in Orange County, Orange County. I got to witness that and that was also another great point of pride for me. So, the, you know, that yeah, Proposition 8 was a tough one.
0: Yes, so I guess I'd, I'd like to draw a line from that activism and you're surviving so many creative people that succumb to AIDS in your oh, early yeah. part, of your, and so where that comes back up again, when we're dealing with the pandemic and how people are willing to, the extent to which they're willing to sign on to protecting themselves, protecting each other. I mean, are there, does this feel like a, not a scab? Is it, what, what kind of a, how oh, do you with react an open, to what's w- going w- on?
2: Like rubbing, uh, 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 <laughs> how do I react to what's going on right now with this, Please. with the current administration bungling everything there is about the COVID-19 and the Reagan administration would not even utter the word or utter the letters HIV or the or AIDS and they wouldn't fund it wouldn't track it and it costs 25 million and 35 million people have died in the last 40 years from HIV yeah And a lot is to blame on the Reagan administration. And I will thank Katie Porter, in our current representative here in Orange County, who put to task the director of Centers for Disease Control, what did not happen in the Reagan administration and what is happening now for COVID, is that Katie Porter pressed the director for the CDC, because it is within the director of the CDC's power to say, no one has to pay for treatment for this pandemic. During the AIDS crisis, that did not happen So, So now you, anybody anybody that contracts COVID can go to the hospital. There is treatment. And the government will fund the hospital and get new treatment. During the Reagan administration and the AIDS crisis and, and pandemic, there was no funding. So if you had HIV or full-blown AIDS in the 80s, you, no hospital would treat you because the hospitals couldn't get any funding. The CDC did not fund anything. So people were just left to the street and to die, or they were left to like find different hospice centers or, you know, desperately searching for any kind of treatment because the federal government funded nothing. And, you, and the hospital couldn't treat you because you needed extreme treatment and isolation because we didn't know how it was transmitted. There wasn't even funding to find out how this was transmitted. And, and, you know, at least if it wasn't for Katie Porter, we, you know, people that with COVID would just be like out on the street because the hospital wouldn't know what to do.
0: So I'm, I'm just in, it's a shorter format than I'm usually uh, typically doing on Ask a Leader. So, as we're doing a commemoration today, I'm not giving you an opportunity to do justice to all of these topics, but I want the, sort of the thread to go through here is what, what you've been about, how one thing has contributed to the next thing. You've been involved, you've taken what you've learned in the scouting and activism, and you, I mean, I wouldn't have, when I first was acquainted with you, I didn't know you'd be building environmentally sustainable sorts of. Uh, destination in uh, <laughs> the country. I don't even know if you learned Spanish before you were doing that. In, it was a, oh, in Colombia, I, I, right?
2: In Colombia. I did live in Colombia for two years. So in scouting, I learned all about nature. Also, I grew up farming and, and I just love plants and animals and you know, how how nature works and its great system and how we're part of it. My My dear friend, Victoria Bettencourt had lived in Colombia for a number of years and had a large family. That her husband was from there, and she said, in order to help support the family, she tried to, in order to support this family. That after her husband died, her husband died of HIV. Oh, I didn't know that. Vicky became the matriarch of this family, and her idea was to create a business, a tourist economy, or at least a place where we could grow our own food and they could feed themselves instead of just sending money. So she bought five acres of jungly area, high in the Andes Mountains, and she needed help and I went down there and we created an eco-resort out of bamboo. And so I lived in a bamboo hut for two years (laughs) while we taught and trained and worked with the government for tourism, education, restoring some of the lands that were had been slashed and burned for farming and then and, and teaching that we don't we don't slash and burn. This is how we re- replenish the earth as we go. And so I was taught a staff how to operate a hotel at a Disney level, but in nature. I see it all And growing it, all of our own food and being everything organic and natural and and now it's an Airbnb in the jungle. Mm-hmm. And, and the buildings I built there are in books. <laughs> so it's, it's been a crazy great ride.
0: Archer, thank you so much for being on Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor and, and for being an available guest maybe four times at least. I really appreciate your time that you're taking today. Good luck on putting everything together.
2: Thank you very much, Claudia. I look forward to seeing you again soon and um, hanging out. Okay.
0: We'll be right back with UCI scientist, Kathleen Tresceder. Welcome back to Ask a Leader Becomes Ask a Neighbor. My next guest is Kathleen Tresceder, uci professor of ecology and evolutionary biology named a chancellor's fellow and leader of the Treseder lab she comes to us today from her home up the hill from where i am welcome back to the program kathleen
4: thanks so much it's so good to be here
0: well it's good to have you when you were on previously it was september 2015 marcelo Suarez. Frank LaFerla's right-hand guy at the time, arranged for a very long format story of your life interview for a Women in STEM publication, which was kind of like a memo to young girls about what their careers could be. And Marcelo gave me a script and I made it my own as usual. And the, <laughs> there were lots of takeaways that we I wanna sort of mention now and we move forward from those that one was, that the diverse makeup of your lab had huge dividends, and your fieldwork in the boreal forest in central Alaska, you studied as the reduction of carbon release, Africa, uh, Alaska was, and it continues to warm up faster than any other region in the world. You talked about the significance of carbon nitrogen uptake by your fungi that you're studying and imagine, in managing climate change. So what, from those takeaways then in 2015, is there some deeper realizations and certainly more findings uh, in your research?
4: Yeah, um, boy, it's it's amazing to think it's been that long, but we've learned so much since then. First of all, in terms of Alaska, we've been able to figure out that there are you know, certain kind of broad groupings of fungi that will behave a certain predictable way in response to climate change. And that's super helpful because there are in the world millions of fungal species. So it's, it would be, (laughs) there are millions of fungal species. So it would be intractable to figure out which each species will do. Mm -hmm. But since we figured out there are these broad groupings, then now we can um, use them to predict what's going to happen. So for instance, If the fungi get under environmental stress, like drought or too warm conditions, then they will basically stop decomposing material as much as we would expect. So that actually helps us because as they decompose material, they release CO2. And so as climate change makes conditions more stressful for these fungi, actually, we expect that there will be a side benefit these fungi will be releasing less CO2 through decomposition.
0: And is it your work too, the, the sort of collateral damage though of that? I mean, you talk about the carbon uptake, but but let's say, are they though endanger the fungi of becoming extinct and their properties then are collateral damage for the entire ecosystems?
4: You know, there could be. So we have some instances where... Like beneficial fungi, I don't know whether you know this, but most plants in the world have these relationships with beneficial fungi called mycorrhizal fungi. And without the mycorrhizal fungi, the plants can barely grow at all. And as humans, say, develop an area or bulldoze a forest or do other things like that, then that tends to knock out those beneficial fungi quite often. And some of them are even, I think, in danger of going extinct. And that we care about a lot because those fungi help these plants grow. And in some cases, there are crop plants or other things that we need. So that is something that we're really interested in as well. And we work to restore those fungi. Like, what are ways that we can actually go in and almost like seed a forest for these fungi that otherwise
0: would be knocked out? Is your lab involved in seeding that or is that a, that's someone else's job?
4: We, we do that. Yeah, we've done that around here. Uh, there's a lot of endangered ecosystems here like the coastal sage shrub. Yes. And we do experiments where we'll seed the coastal sage scrub to try to help it recover from disturbance. Even though that's not fungi. Um, oh, sorry, we'll seed the fungi in the coastal sage scrub. In the, okay, so, okay. Yeah, yeah, to help the scrub grow better.
0: So and the makeup of your lab I mean that was part of the reason for Marcello wanting you to yeah. give your life story about stem careers for girls to follow so uh, I I was very impressed by you saying there it's not a tokenism your diverse lab is delivering on all the ways that you cover your research
4: oh yeah definitely and, and especially now when we have anti black racism really in the conversation and, oh, just even the recent decision by the Supreme Court to uphold DACA for now. These are all things that touch my lab members as individuals. And so as they come up, we bring that and we fold that into our science. Like, how can we consider how anti-Black racism, how we might be you know, perhaps perpetuating that inadvertently in our research? And what can we do then to stop that. We can't, like, it's very, very hard for any one person to fix anti-Black racism in the whole country, but we can each do our own part. And we have a lot of control over the research in our lab. And so we can really interrogate that. And I feel so lucky that we have students who have firsthand experiences with these issues that can really contribute and say, like, no, this is what we need to change. This is how we need to change how we do ecology. This is how we need to change how we do teaching. And I get to listen to them and
0: make those improvements. And I think what you also mentioned, that you said that there's perspective, not necessarily, there's maybe cultural or science, scientific perspective that the diversity of your yeah. Your lab researchers that you would have no window on were it not for their contributions. Oh, that's exactly true.
4: So I think I mentioned in the previous interview one of my students, um, Adriana Romeo Ades. Yes. She she got her PhD from my lab. She was from Mexico, and she brought in this incredible knowledge of fungi that we would never have um had access to otherwise. And so for instance, she knew a lot about the fungi in these really dry land areas. She knew about fungi in the Deep Horizons oil spill wow. <laughs> um, off the Gulf of Mexico. And also, we started getting into this fungus that causes this disease in the US and Mexico. It's called valley fever. Oh, yeah. And Mexican researchers are really the experts in this fungus. And um, Adriana had these relationships with the Mexican researchers. So when the Mexican researchers heard through her that we were starting to work on this, they invited us down and um, hosted our lab and told us you know, what they knew about this fungus. And it was really wonderful. And we ended up publishing a paper together talking about best practices for working across nations to tackle wow. these
0: sorts of problems. The- that is phenomenal. That's why we've had you on then and we have <laughs> you on now. Well, if you just joined us, my guest is UCI Ecology and Evolutionary Scientist, Chancellor's Fellow and Leader of the Treseder Lab, Professor Kathleen Treseder. Kathleen, when we talked, it was before 2017. You have developed a whole new portion of your portfolio as a political as an activist individual since 2017, I've held you up as an example to people who said, no, I I really, I don't have time to pick up on that. And I said, well, well this woman running a lab seems to have made time for her activism. I want you to give our listeners a benefit of what happened in you that got you to mobilize in the beginning of 2017 forward. And you were so visible in the, Midterm elections in 2018 and visible right up until the victory lap we'll talk about with climate action this last early winter.
4: Yeah, well, what happened was, you know, after Trump got elected, I happened to be teaching a large lecture class on climate change. And, you know, we heard that Trump was trying to decide whether to withdraw from the Paris Agreement, which is an international treaty to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And he actually scheduled a press conference in the Rose Garden right during the same time as my lecture. So I said, okay, for this lecture, what we're going to do is we're going to tune in live to this press conference and hear what the president has decided. There's your remote teaching device yeah. already. <laughs> exactly. And so we're in this, you picture we're in this huge lecture hall. We have the, you know, cracked linoleum floor. We have those seats that are really creaky. And I don't know whether students realize, but when the professor is in front of the lecture hall, even you though you might have a hundred students there, I can see each person's space. And so I can see whether they're asleep, whether they're paying attention, mm-hmm. what room they're in. Well, as we're watching the press conference. Trump comes out, he says he's withdrawing from the Paris Agreement. And the whole time, I'm watching my students' faces. I can see all of their faces. And I just, I could see how brokenhearted they were, just devastated. And I've never forgotten that moment, seeing a whole lecture hall with young people who were seeing their future just being destroyed. So at that moment, I decided, look, I've got to get out of the classroom, I've got to get out of the lab, I've got to get into the community, and I've got to do what I can do to try to reverse some of this damage, get out there, work locally to reduce greenhouse gas emissions, at least where I am. And that has changed my life since then. I can't even imagine going back to what I was before.
0: I Actually, I, I remember you saying that, and you're going to say that for all of us to take in now. And so where did you start seeing midterm elections? How did that move on to your plate?
4: So what happened was, you know, at the time Mimi Walters was our representative and she's conservative and my colleagues and I did everything we could to get, to even just get a meeting with her to talk about climate change and what she could do legislatively to combat it. And I still have not ever met her in person. So we had meetings with her aides and they were great. They listened to us, didn't make any difference. Like she still didn't vote in favor of a single pro-environmental bill while I was working on this. And that's when I decided, all right, it looks like you know, we've done our best to work with her, but it looks like we just need new leadership here. And about that time, Katie Porter reached out to me and told me she was going to run. And I thought, this is the perfect person. She's my neighbor. She lives around the corner. <laughs> oh, you were already <laughs>
0: acquainted with her. Yeah. Because so you're not yeah. in the law school. You're in bioscience. Yeah.
4: Okay. Bioscience. Yeah. And so I was like, I'm going to do everything I can to get Katie Porter elected. I know if she is in office. She will listen to me. She has no choice. She sees me when we're walking the dog. So that's how I got invested in the midterm elections. I
0: went all in. Wow. Did you even imagine, you knew her in a neighborly way, did you even imagine the kind of heft, the profile that she would eventually assume in the House of Representatives?
4: I did not. Like, and it's not, and it's, I mean, she's so impressive, but coming in as a freshman from a district that is very, very purple, she doesn't have a huge mandate with her voting margin to take risks and put herself out there. But she still does. She does what she thinks is right. And I think that resonates with people.
0: She's authentic. And I mentioned about earlier about taking a victory lap with climate action, that you were working on the municipal level with getting the city to adopt creating a climate action plan, you want to talk about that. And to the extent your maybe your students were also engaged in that.
4: Right. And so one of the approaches that I decided to take is, all right, you know, at the time I was having trouble getting to see Mimi Walters. But then I realized, hey, I can go to any city council meeting in Orange County and talk for three minutes. They have to let me talk. It's because of the Brown Act and they need to sit there and listen to me. And so I thought this is a good scope to work on for climate action. So I looked into the different programs that could work locally to help cities convert to renewable energy. And the other activists in this area informed me about this thing called Community Choice Energy. Community Choice Energy is a plan that allows cities to convert to up to 100% renewable energy if they choose. And so I started working on this. A lot of students at UCI worked as well, including also my colleagues. We just met every city council member, we could individually, we talked to every city council meeting that we could to get them to think about it. And it is working. I can't believe it. The city of Irvine has decided to implement community choice energy.
0: Yes, they are genuinely committed to this, it appears. Kathleen, thank you so much for your time and the example you continue to be. Oh,
4: well, thank you so much. Thanks for listening to me. And I really appreciate all your support.
0: Thank you. My guest was UCI ecology and evolutionary scientist, chancellor's fellow and leader of the Tresceder Lab, Professor Kathleen Tresceder. We'll be right back after a very short station break with Claire Trevor School of the Arts director, Jane Page. Thank you for staying tuned my last guest on this taking stock show is jane page director and professor of theater at the claire trevor school of the arts she may be the guest who's had the most laps on ask a leader she's brought plays actors directors and playwrights along with performances that best the previous illustrious productions she's done she comes to us today from her home, across the way from where I am, welcome back to Ask a Leader, Jane Page. Thank you. I'm just delighted to be here. Thank you. I'm so glad. And you've been through so much. You've been through the ringer like all of your colleagues and all of your students with the lockdown from COVID-19. This, it was even before the spring, and you've had to rethink theater, and you have done it on a dime so you had tell us a little bit Jane about how you had to redo the classroom as well as the stage. Well it was a very unusual quarter as I was supposed
3: to be on sabbatical in spring quarter but when it became apparent uh, in week 10 that things had changed drastically um, I forgo the sabbatical and decided to stay on campus to be available to students and to to cover some more classes, because we have a lot of students whose plans to travel to New York changed. So I sort of developed a new class that ended up being uh, really fun and informative for 25 students. So that was a huge learning curve, because technology is not necessarily my closest
0: friend. But your agility, it's in your DNA, Jane, with how you've done various pop-up performances, various opportunistic ways of engaging the public with theater. So I would, I would imagine the same body, the same mind that was able to pull off those things could jump in with more ingenuity than perhaps many of your colleagues all over the UC Irvine campus.
3: Well, I think from what I've heard, lots of people everywhere across campus have done some amazing work. And our students are to be congratulated on being uh, tenacious, and open and flexible and really supportive, knowing that the faculty are are trying to deliver content in a whole new way.
0: And you've had both undergraduate and graduate students. Is there a response, a a different, any kind of different uh, way of engaging in the classroom between the two? Well, they were all in the same class together. And I, I was strategic about
3: when they were working in small groups where people landed. But our department, and particularly in in production, it's a really lovely connection between undergrads and grads, and I think that's one thing that mm. that I'm very proud about the department doing.
0: And now it's it's all up in the air. The protocols for how people are returning, and the School of the Arts has you have all your own requirements for what what kind of a protocol would work in your pedagogy in in your helping build. Theatric skills with your undergrad and graduate students. So are you getting a sort of steady Sort of indication or is it just sort of coming in fits and spurts?
3: Well, it's like everything It's uh, relative to the day and the hour in terms Ah. of of what's going to be allowed and what will be possible So I think the watchword for us has just remained incredibly flexible and trying to reconfigure and rethink how
0: we're gonna do this And now one of the reasons I have you here with me is because you always have some enterprise that you're involved in and you have a wonderful play that we can all enjoy virtually from now until June 29th. It's called Human Error, written by Eric Pfeffinger, whom I understand in preparation for this interview that you met in Denver, you're always meeting these playwrights all over the world and then you bring the play to us eventually for the moment it's performed through the north coast repertory and tell us how i mean this is the it's an unprecedented production you're breaking ground with a virtual play with five characters tell us about putting together human error
3: Well, I I wouldn't say that. I I think we're one of the pioneers, but there have been so many different uh, ways people are engaging in theater uh, via Internet and online resources and readings and all sorts of things. This is unique, I think, in that it's an equity company, which is a union house and negotiating with equity to make this possible required a lot of effort on David Ellenstein, who's the artistic director's commitment to making this play happen.
0: He's with North Coast Repertory.
3: Yes, he's the artistic director. And what a courageous and uh, tenacious man he is. He's just been a real pleasure to work with. It's, you know, it's sort of like everybody's in their own little telephone box in their own location, wherever they're, you know, working. And it's, it's trying to create an environment in what I call the room, the Zoom room, where people can feel like they're connected even though they are geographically challenged. It's a real dance. It's really interesting on one level and and quite frustrating on others. But I think it's a play that is well served. I it I would love to do this play in person. I did a reading of it in 2017 and was looking forward to directing it in person. But this is a really interesting way to enjoy the play, to sort of look at another Way to, to use a vert, uh, uh, an online resource like Zoom and try and make it reach beyond, you know, the, the box, the Brady Bunch box, or <laughs> we're all calling them different things.
0: No, oh, it's much, 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 much more than that. I had an opportunity, listeners. I've seen the play from start to finish, and Dane Page is the director's director. She gets so much out of these people. Tell us where each of these five characters, the actors, were positioned actually physically. Well,
3: Terrell, who plays Kenan, uh, was in Virginia. Jackie, who plays Heather, was in Denver. And everybody else was in the Southern California area, between San Diego, Seal Beach. You know, I'm in Irvine. There are people in this general vicinity and somebody said, what's the best thing about it? I said, well, the commute is great because you yes. just in one room to another. And, but, you know, it, it meant, meant that when we were working, we worked from four in the afternoon till nine at night in a five-hour block. It also meant that it was much later when we went to an evening rehearsal for Terrell, who was in Virginia because he's on East Coast time. Oh, yeah. Oh. So it was challenging, but it was new for everyone. So everyone came in with a real spirit of, we're going to make this work and being flexible. And we had this amazing man, Aaron Rumley, who is the sound designer, the production manager, the stage manager, and also did all of the editing of putting it all together.
0: Hats off to him. Aaron nailed it.
3: astonishing, astonishing.
0: So human error... When you first promoted it to me, you emphasized the comedic aspects, but it is so much more. Just give us a thumbnail of the genre and what a, a little bit of the storyline, but I want for no spoilers so that people know <laughs> that they're going to be roped in as it's every bit worth their time in investigating this play of yours.
3: Well, it's, as I said, it's a, it's a comedy, but it's a comedy that's really about things. And it's really, a, it's really poignant in terms of what's going on in the world right now. And the notion of how do we find understanding when our culture and our values are so divided? How do we build walls? And when do we start trying to look through those walls? What are opportunities for us to look for what we do have in common? It, it leaves us also with a sense of hope, I think of change. And it's not huge change. It's not cataclysmic,
0: but it's one person at a time. Well, I think besides the metaphor of walls, Jane, I would like to propose that it gets under everybody's skin, this play. Well, it's great to hear. <laughs> the characters get under each other's skin uh, in sort of insidious ways. And it's I don't think we're aware at a certain point, we're not aware that we're, we're enduring another Zoom session. We are straight in with a play and situated. It's groundbreaking. I said it's the people can reach the box office with the email box office at northcoastrep.org. The website, so you can get familiar with the organization, it's in Solana Beach. That's in San Diego County. You can go to northcoastrep.org for various details about that. As you said in preparation, too, of this interview, Jane, that each actor makes what we get out of this, that in fact, if you were to, to cast other individuals, it would remake the entire play. Talk a little bit about how much that, those elements contribute to the impact we get.
3: Well, I think, I mean, I think it's true with every play, depending upon who's playing which roles. But I think because centers around two couples, that depending upon how you interpret those people and who you have in, the, in those roles really gives you a different lens into, you know, who's right at any one moment. And the point is that the playwright doesn't tell you who's right and who's wrong. But by the end of the of the play, I think no matter where you put yourself on the liberal conservative end of the spectrum, you have moved in some ways. And I exactly. think that's rather remarkable.
0: That is that is the word I would use. I call, I actually, I give people what I call the movement award is how much they have rethought their original dispositions politically and, and, and culturally and that kind of thing. It is it is movement. And that again, that's an interesting additional descriptor for in a Zoom, oh, there is movement, like movement under the skin. <laughs> <laughs> so it's possible for anyone at any time to view this play because it is a virtual play. People have until it's through June 29th. And as you also explained in preparation for this interview, that end date is a negotiation with the the actors guilds they have to have an end date for these productions to be virtually accessed correct
3: that's my understanding is that the playwright and the and the actors union and the theater companies you know they negotiate how people are going to be compensated based on how many days they're working and people as long as the piece is up will you know are, are being paid because they are they can it's not their fault that they're not they're in person, but there has to be a cutoff date. So don't well, miss it.
0: I don't want anybody to miss this. And I'm, I'm going to actually make a point. I'm going to be gifting people. Cause I, I don't, it's a little bit of a hard sell for people to be on the screen a little bit more, but I've been so moved by this that I, I can't imagine so many of my, my dear affiliates. I don't want them to miss out and I don't want listeners to miss out. Well, is there, Jane, is there anything else you want to say in this? <laughs> I want to say
3: congratulations to you for 10 years of being on the air. And, and you, I know you do so much prep work every week to make sure that the guests are, are understood and that you ask great questions. And always for me, welcoming uh, students and anyone else that I might suggest that we bring in uh, to talk with you. So congratulations, Claudia.
0: Oh thank you. Thank you so much, Jane. I must say all of the coverage that I've done together with you, it's, it's really deepened my appreciation. I've never seen as many plays as I have since I've begun interviewing you on Ask a Leader. And so I owe you a debt of gratitude for opening up a really broad and a really deep cultural experience for me. I'm so grateful, Jane.
3: Well, I'm happy to have you as a friend and a colleague.
0: Thank you. My guest, was Jane Page, director and professor of theater at the Claire Trevor School of the Arts with a West Coast premiere of Human Error, written by Eric Pfeffinger, performed with the North Coast Rep in Solana Beach, California, presented online for everyone's viewing pleasure. Thank you, Jane, for your time and all the other appearances these years since you joined UCI's Claire Trevor School of the Arts, and my neighborhood.
3: Thanks, Claudia.
0: The segments with Archer Alstetter and Kathleen truss have extended versions on my website, askaleader.com. So find out more what they had to say. We didn't get to cover it all in this show. Before saying that's my wrap, I want to let you know, you can just email me why I muted KUCI on my second show. Kind of funny. Kinda of sad, kinda of dramatic. Well, this was my wrap. Next on these airwaves is DJ Brian Scott with his show, The Italo Connection. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. Masks are stylish, masks are respectful, masks are necessary. Mask up, Osi.